Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 12. If you missed last week, uh, I gave you the page number. This week you have to find it on your own. Just kidding. Uh, It's on page 1457, 1457. Uh, The book of Habakkuk is a prayer, and it's a prayer that changes a man. Uh, We're looking at the second part. My favorite part is chapter 3, I know. It's like... Shouldn't have favorite parts of the Bible, but it really is. It's got one of my favorite verses in it, so that's coming next week. Um, but today we start to see that change, that shift happening in the life of this prophet. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. We're only going to read through verse 5, but during the sermon we will finish uh, the passage. That We will finish the chapter. So Habakkuk 1, let's start at verse 12. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? You have made men like the fish of the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look and see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to his complaint. And the Lord answers. The Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can look back in history, we can look back at your word and see times when people ask you how long, when the situation around people was so hard and so desperate that they seemed to have no hope until they looked to you. Father, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. That as we look to you, we would realize that the situations around us are somehow under your control. And that you would teach us to trust in you. And that through our prayers and through our calling out to you, you would change us and transform us. Thank you for the hope that we have in eternity. Thank you that we are not saved, we are not changed by our own works, but we are changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Remind us of that assurance, we pray in his name. Amen. I remind you, uh, it is best if you keep your Bibles open 
uh, and, and, and keep them in front of you, especially because we didn't read that end section. But I, a big part for me, the way I approach preaching is I want this to be a reflection of what you do every day of the week. We are called to be people who study God's word. And we are called to be people who pray. And when we see God's reply here, that's what God does through his word. He speaks to us. That is a miracle. And we are privileged. So keep those Bibles in front of you and continue to think through the words that are being said. My hope is that it's not just my words, but it's words that they're the words of God. Many years ago, uh, there was a man named Ambrose. Now, uh, in the city where Ambrose lived, he lived in a city called Milan. Uh, and in this city, uh, the, chur- the, the, the church had just lost a pastor. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, he had just died, though. It's a little bit of a different situation. And so uh, everyone came to the church to see who was going to be the new pastor, who was going to be the bishop. And, and the pastor of, of the Church of Milan wasn't just in charge of the Church of Milan. They were in charge of other churches. And so everyone was packed into the church that day because they wanted to see who it was going to be. And there were people cheering and talking, and, 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 and they were all wondering. And then somebody recognized Ambrose. Now, Ambrose was the governor of the area, and he'd been a person who cared for the poor, so he was a generally good guy, but he really didn't go to church that much, to be honest. And somebody saw him, and they remembered his good reputation, and he'd done a good job for the town. They said, Ambrose of Milan, Ambrose, Bishop for, of Milan, and people started cheering. They said, yeah, yeah, and he's like, oh no, what just happened? Within four days, he was baptized. He hadn't even been baptized yet. He was ordained, and then he was made bishop. He was made pastor of this church. Now, <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. I'll tell you that right now. You don't just choose somebody, put them as pastor if they haven't even been baptized in the church yet. Everything, when you look at the situation of Ambrose's life, it should have been utter failure. But what's fascinating is that during his pastoral ministry, he was one of the most successful pastors in history. He lived in the 300s, and we're still talking about him today. During his, during, during, while he was a pastor, uh, uh, the emperor named Theodosius uh, was a member of his church. Uh, and the emperor had gone and, as emperors tend to do, had destroyed an entire city, the city of Thessaloniki, uh, because there had been an uprising. He said the best way to kill an uprising is kill all the people, 3,000 people dead in a day. Ambrose put him under church discipline. And for six months, the emperor had to stand outside the door and publicly ask for forgiveness as people walked in. Because a public sin requires public confession. Can you imagine doing that? The emperor. He's in charge of the whole empire. Church discipline. During, while Ambrose was also a pastor, uh, during his preaching, there was a man named Augustine, who was probably the most famous Christian uh, in history. He sat under Ambrose's teaching, and he talks about how when Ambrose preached from the word, it seemed to come alive. Uh, while, he was, while he was pastor, the empress tried to remove them from the church and so they had a church sit-in and praying. And so the entire congregation stayed in the church singing songs and praying. And they refused to leave until finally the empress says, fine, you guys can still meet in your church. And they stuck it out. He led his church through that. He's also one of the first people that we have record that he would silently read the scriptures. Augustine talks about how he would walk in and, and, and he, he saw Ambrose and the, his lips would be moving, but he wasn't doing it out loud. Because usually God's word was something that was read publicly. But Ambrose realized this is something that has to change me. He helped the poor. He was known for his preaching. But he also wrote hymns. And at the end of the service, we're going to actually sing a hymn that he wrote. And if you look at it, the first three verses are about who God is. 
And then by the very end, the, the, the last verse, the fourth verse, talks about how we should live. You see, when you look at his situation, his life, he should have been an utter failure as a pastor. But if you look at the way he lived his life, he looked to God first. You see, because of who God is, we should seek to be righteous. We should always look to God first in the midst of terrible situations. What we realize is God changed Ambrose because Ambrose looked to God. That seems so basic, but so often we forget it. In this book of Habakkuk, uh, the, what we talked about last, last, in the first chapter, you have Habakkuk's first complaint. He's looking at the injustice around him and he doesn't understand. And then God replies to his prayer. And then today we're looking at his second complaint. He complains to God, wait a minute, how are you going to punish us through the Babylonians? That can't be right. And then you see God's reply once again. And by the time we get to chapter 3, you're going to realize that this man is completely changed because he's going to see, say, no matter what happens, no matter what the situation is around me, I will trust in God. You see, Habakkuk was changed through prayer in a situation where the world, the country, the town, his family, everything was falling apart. If you remember, this was a time of political downfall. In a matter of 30 years, they went from being one of the uh, world's most powerful nations to being completely decimated. In Jerusalem, there, was, there wasn't a stone upon a stone. They went to nothing. There was also a moral downfall. If you read any of the books before Habakkuk or any of the books afterwards, the prophets are constantly telling the people, you've got to change. You cannot keep oppressing the poor. You cannot continue to to worship idols. You cannot continue in this life of violence. And the people just aren't listening. And so there's moral decline and there's political, political decline. And all of this happens in the life of Habakkuk. And so he turns to God and says, how long? That's how it started last week. But this week, it starts a little bit differently. By the time that we get to the second complaint, he looks to God. Now, an encouragement to you, when you read your Bible, oftentimes we say, what is God speaking to me? And that's a good thing to do when you read your Bible. But you should also think, what is this teaching me, first of all, about God? Who God is? It's not just about us. It's actually about the creator of the universe. First, who God is. And second, how we should live. And that's reflected in his prayer. If you look at verses Chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 1, that's Habakkuk's complaint. And the charge here is to remember and wait. In verses 12 to 13, you see the character of God. First of all, you see a God who is personal. If you look at the way he speaks to him, he says, My God, my Holy One, it's His. There's a personal relationship. When we say our Father, that little word our, it's not His Father, it's my Father, it's our Father. We have a personal God who speaks to us, and we are able to speak to him. That is miraculous. The other thing that we see about this is it's a covenantal God. When you look at your Bible, if you see right there in verse 12 where it says Lord, and all of the words, all of the letters are capitalized. What that's a reflection of in the Hebrew is that's, it's called the Tetragrammaton, uh, but that's essentially uh, where it was the covenantal name of God. It's the name that God gave to his people. And so when you said Lord, you were remembering that God kept his promises. God kept his promises in the law. God kept his promises to David. Even when we have a baptism, we are remembering the God of the covenant, that God keeps his promise to our children. Our faith starts with God promised. And so we trust in those promises. You can also see, if you look in these verses, in verse 13 it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You see, God cannot tolerate wickedness. God is, the term for that is holy. He is perfect. And the reason that Judah must be punished is the same reason that we deserve to be punished. We are not 
holy. And yet Christ took the punishment that Judah received. God, Christ took that punishment for us. We deserved total annihilation. And yet Jesus stood in our place. It talks, when he talks about God, he says he is the everlasting. He calls him, O oh, rock. There's this aspect of stability. When the whole world is turning upside down, he says, you are my rock. Romans 8, what does it say to us? I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's this promise that he will not go away. And so there's this, even in the midst of his prayer, he recognizes who God is. And then that allows him to look at what implications this has. If you look at verse 12, he says, we will not die. Now, why would he say that if he wasn't petrified of dying? What does that mean? In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon established the temple, he built this beautiful temple, and everyone was worshiping God, and it looked like it was great, but if you look at Solomon's prayer, he says, God, we are a messed up people, so when we leave, when we forsake you, when we chase after other gods, when we abandon your house, which are all the things that had happened, he says, please listen to your people when they return to you. Please retain for yourself a remnant. Do not destroy us completely. And God answered Solomon's prayer. So he could say, we will not die, because he remembered God's promises. But if you look at, at the end of verse 13, there's also comparison. He says, aren't we more righteous than they, you see, there had been these Judean, these people from the, the, the nation of Judah, and they were oppressing the, the poor. And so in the first prayer, we see Habakkuk really wants them punished. And so God says, Fine, I'm, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to punish them with the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, wait, 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 wait. But they're worse than we are. How are you going to use the wicked to oppress the people who are less wicked? That just doesn't make sense. And then he describes these Babylonians. If you look at verses 14 to 17, he uses a fishing metaphor. First, Habakkuk feels like anarchy rules. It's sort of like in the ocean. Who survives in the ocean? It's the biggest fish, right? The biggest fish with the biggest teeth. And he's saying that's essentially, it's total anarchy. There's no justice here. How is that possible? Second, when Babylonian fishes, it does it with ease. He's, he uses examples of hooks, drags, and it's almost like they're scooping their nets, dumping the fish out, and it's, it's, it's a piece of cake. There's a story that Mr. Rowe, uh, Teresa's dad, tells. Uh, that when she was uh, four years old, so about the, the age of Nora, uh, they went fishing. And he would bait the hook, she would throw it, and she would catch one right away. And then he'd take the fish off, bait the hook. And after about 20 minutes of that, he started throwing the bait away because he's like, this is, this is getting ridiculous. What are we going to do with all these fish? And since then, she's hated fishing because it seems boring. Uh, all fishing is not like that. But that's when he describes this, that's sort of the way he describes it. it, it, it does it not end? How are they doing it with such ease? But third, it it become an economic necessity. So if you think about the American economy, a lot of times trade is what drives us. You know, as long as people are buying and selling, the American economy does fairly well. The Babylonian economy would depended on them pummeling other nations and plundering them. So the the capital of Babylon was 500 acres. It had thousands of temples. It had a population of 100,000. They had these massive walls that, four, the way Herodotus talks about, four horses could go abreast. That's how thick they were. They, and how were they paying for their massive economy? By pummeling other people. And so he uses these fishing metaphors, and he says, how is this possible? Last week he said, how long? This week he starts with the character of God, but he's still left pondering injustice. He says, how can, how can you use the Babylonians to punish us? They're worse than we are. But what does he say? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He will wait on the Lord. I will stand 
on my watch. You see, Habakkuk is on the tower or the rampart defense. He's looking for the Babylonian invasion. He believes that God's promises, but he's preparing an answer. And he's, he's expecting God to reprove him. He's expecting God to say, wait, you don't have enough faith or you're wrong or something like that. And, and, and he's preparing his argument because he's trying to think, maybe there's something I don't see. Maybe there's something else. Here's the thing. The mature Christian is called to wait on the Lord. In the, in, in the Bible, there's another book called Lamentations. And in the book of Lamentations was written around the same time period. And if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's got, it's got five chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything is falling apart. It's God, why have you abandoned us? Why have you left us? Why are you punishing us? And it's just question after question. And it's just grieving. You've abandoned us. You've left us alone. And it's built in an acrostic. So it's literally the alphabet. And each, each, each verse starts with, with A and then B and then C. And it's like he's clinging to the alphabet because it's the only order that he understands. Because everything else is chaos around him. And then chapter 3 starts the same way until you get to verse 22. Lamentations 3, 22 to 26. And before that, everything is falling apart. And then all of a sudden, he remembers the promises of God. And this is what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We've sung that so many times. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who, listen carefully, wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Habakkuk remembers that. He says, I don't understand And instead of a flurry of action or a flurry of worry, he says, I will wait on the Lord. In the next verses, you see God's reply. And he gives promises for two kinds of people. And you have to remember, first of all, when God makes a promise, it actually lasts forever. In verses 2 through 3, it talks about the permanence of God's promise. He says, write it on a tablet, which echoes 2 Chronicles 5.10 and and other places where where the law of God was written on tablets of stone. So it's not like you can go and erase one if you don't want to. They're chiseled in there. You cannot take them away. And so God is telling him, write it on stone so it's permanent. Also, make it a clear message so that when people are going from town to town, everyone is able to understand. And he says, though it tarries, though it slows down, even if it's hindered, don't you worry. My promise is coming, which is great hope for us, but it's, wait a second. God's promise is also of destruction, right? He's sending the Babylonians. If God keeps his promises, wait a second, is that always a good thing? And so there's two kinds of people. There's the proud and there's the righteous. And this is one of, this, there's a plot twist here. This is one of the coolest parts of the book. I know I keep saying that. Um, but based on the earlier part of the book, we expect, uh, the, so there's two kinds of people, the proud and the righteous. We expect the proud to be Babylon. If you look at the verse here, it says they are puffed up in verse 4. It's the proud. It's the people who aren't upright, who aren't straight from Habakkuk 1.11. And we expect that of Babylon. Babylon was proud. In chapter 1, it describes how they trusted their might. But this, this word puffed up is also found in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verses 44 and 45. And this is describing none other than God's people, the nation of Israel. There's one time where, they, do you remember the story of the 12 spies? The 12 spies were sent into the promised land. Uh, they look around, they say, oh, there's no way we can do it. Two people said, yes, we can. Ten people said, no, we can't. And so they said, forget it, we're not going in there. And that's usually where we stop the story for Sunday school. You know, okay, so then God made them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. What we don't usually tell them is after they hear, wait, we have to wander for 40 years, they say, fine, no, we'll go. We don't need God. We'll go into that, pro- that promised land alone. And, and what it says there is that they were puffed up. They go in and they get absolutely demolished. 
And then they learned to fear the Lord because they had tried to trust in themselves. You see, this, this puffed up proud people isn't just for the Babylonians. This is sometimes for God's people too. It's sometimes for us. We are called not to be proud. We are called to be righteous. It, it talks, when it talks about the proud, it talks about how the unrighteous soul is never satisfied. It's like death. In Proverbs, it talks about there's four things that are never satisfied, and one of them is death. If you've had a close friend, it sometimes feels like that. Why is death never satisfied? And it compares it to the word here. It's a little complicated. The word here is, is wine is never satisfied. Some, people, some commentators think it's wealth, but if you think it's actually fairly similar, if you know somebody who's an alcoholic or you know someone who's very, very greedy, it, essentially it's the same thing. You cannot get enough. There's no stopping it. And so it, it carries this idea of the proud never have enough. But the contrast is the righteous. And what does it say here? Take a look there at verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. This is the turning point of the book. The righteous will live by faith. What does that mean? This phrase is used in the New Testament at key parts. It's considered the key turning point in the book of Romans, which is a really important section. In Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, they're talking about justification by faith. You are not saved by what you do. You are saved by who you believe in. Who do you believe in? Is it Jesus Christ? And you can be saved. And so it says there in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, forth faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Galatians 3.11, he said, he's using the same argument. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, by what they do, for the righteous shall live by faith. You cannot be saved by what you do. It doesn't matter how good you are. It will not work. God is holy. You are not. I am not. We are saved in faith in Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect to this. Not only is it the righteous live by faith, but the righteous truly live. In the book of Hebrews, this section that we read earlier, in, it's, it's talking about patience in the midst of great persecution. In the book of Hebrews, they'd been persecuting and people were pummeling them. Why? Because they believed in Jesus Christ. And so, in Hebrews 10, it says, you have, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's talking about faithful Living, You see, this isn't about nationality, Babylon versus Judah, but spirituality. It's, are we characterized by pride or by faith? Who do you trust? Who do I trust? Notice, it's not the proud and the good, good people, that's not it. It's the proud and the righteous. And how do we become righteous? Is it by trying really hard? Is it by doing good things? Romans 5.19, by grace through faith. Ephesians 2. Verse 8. See, God's promise is sure. Tablet of stone, remember that. It will come. So there's that promise. There's that salvation in the midst of what God says. But in the rest of chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, there's five woes. And he's saying, woe or careful or beware to those who. And it gives five examples. But in, in the midst of those five woes or those five warnings, there's two positive statements about who God is. In the first warning... Verses 6 through 8, it's, it's a warning 
against those who gain wealth by oppression. If you remember earlier, Habakkuk asked how long? But here we see that same question. It's asked by those who are being oppressed. Those who are being oppressed saying, how long will you let this go, Lord? But God's showing that what they did to others will turn upon themselves. If you remember the book of Esther, in chapter 7, verse 10, there's a man named Haman. And he hates this other guy. So he builds the gallows. He wants to have this man hanged. And he builds the gallows uh, that's super high just so everyone can see this man hung. And you know what later happens to him by the end of the story? He's hung on that same gallows. (laughs) The other guy's not. He is. The pit that he digs, he falls into it himself. And so God warns, if you try to gain wealth by oppressing the poor through violence, it will happen to you. And so the Judean oppressors, the people of Judah who had oppressed the poor, they're taken out by the Babylonians. Later, the Babylonians, within 30 years, they're taken out by Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. And there's this cycle that goes on. The second warning is in verse 9 through 11. And it's a woe against those who build by evil gain. And he, he uses this metaphor of building a house. And it says it will bring shame. Now, the best example I can I, I could think of this is in a kid's book that I read several years ago. Uh, it's by a boy named Ralph Moody. It's placed in the 19-teens, 1920s. And it's about a young man. Uh, he's, he's actually about eight or nine. And he, he, he's working with his dad. And he lies to his dad. Uh, he tells his dad something that isn't true. They worked with horses. And his dad found out. And his dad took him aside and looked at him and he said, You have been given opportunities in your life. And they're like the materials that you use to build a house. And every time you lie, every time you cheat, every time you do something wrong, you're taking those materials and you're burning them. But every time you do something right, every time you show integrity, even when no one is looking, you are building your character house. So when people look at you, what do they see? I've never forgotten that. What are you doing with with those opportunities? Are you burning them? Are you building something? If we look at the oppressors, what are they doing? They're building their house on the suffering of others. And literally the word that it says here is the stones cry out. Those who gain through oppression. Verses 12 through 14 is a third warning against empty pursuits. And again, violence defines their action. But it also describes it as fire. And if you think about a prairie fire, when it comes, it leaves nothing. Think about our culture. We are called to a different life. In our culture, we constantly pursue the next thing. As a kid, it's, it's you think Christmas will make you happy. And then by the day after Christmas, you're fighting with your brother and your sister again. Right? Uh, even as adults, we think we get that truck. We get that house. We get, we, if our kids will just act this way, then we'll be happy. We are filled with empty pursuits. And, and literally, this emptiness that we feel, it, what Habakkuk says, is, is this not from the Lord? Does this not call us to look to something else? And then you see the positive, positive statement. You see there's oppression, there's evil gain, there's empty pursuits, and they fade so quickly. But what does it say about the knowledge of the glory of God? And it says, they will fill the world like water covers the sea. This same phrase is used somewhere else in the book of Isaiah. And I want you to think about it. I'm going to read a little section of it, and I want you to remember. When is it that we read this passage? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. We always read this at Christmas time. Because it's talking about Jesus Christ. If you keep reading, it's going to talk about how the lion will lay down with the lamb, and it gives us a picture of heaven. And it says, all this will happen because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as water 
covers the sea. This is meant to be a contrast. You have these empty pursuits. You can chase after the things of this life, or you can chase eternity. And why were you blessed? So many times we pray for God's blessing. If you look at uh, in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham, you have been blessed to be a blessing. That's the reason for salvation, is to be a blessing to others. Westminster Confession, uh, question one. If you look on page 869 of your hymnal, you don't have to. But the first question is going to be, what is the chief end of man? And she fend is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It has nothing to do with this world. It has to do with the eternal God. The fourth warning, if you look at your passage, is against those who are filled with wickedness. And it talks about how they drink up their wicked ways. And if you remember when Evan, Pastor Evan was preaching on the book of Revelation, he talked about the different cups of wrath. Uh, literally, that's what this is talking about. They are drinking judgment upon themselves. The fifth warning is against idolatry. And, and in, in Psalms 115, uh, it's, there's this, the psalmist is literally making fun of people who worship idols. And what it says, their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, and, then, and eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. And this description of idols, I mean, it seems absurd. Would you talk to your bricks? Would you talk to a, a chunk of wood outside? But let me ask you this. What do you worship? And you say God. Okay. But what do you live for? What do you, what's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? What is it that drives you? Is it how people see you? You want to have the best car? Newer house? Perfect kids? I say perfect kids and I'm pointing to myself. Last week after church they were doing laps around the sanctuary and I was like, stop, and I gave them a good yelling at, right? And the reason I yelled at them wasn't because I cared about them. It's because I didn't want people to think that my, you know, it reflected on me. They were, you know, I don't want them to think that I was a bad dad and yada, yada, yada. Is that a good reason to discipline how people see me? Or is it because I've been called to be a father, to raise my children in the admonition of the Lord? You see, what idolatry is isn't necessarily often bad things, but it's good things that take the place of where God should be. Success. Sometimes we can idolize family. We can idolize education. These are good things. But is that what drives us? Is that where we find our answers? Is that what we trust? What does it say here? There's no breath in it. There's no substance. But then you have the second positive statement. What does it say? The Lord is in his holy temple. That's not talking about the church. Do you know where the temple is? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body... Is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought, bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Isn't that amazing? The Lord is in his temple. He is in you. Be still. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. Literally here it says, let the earth be silent. Kind of like chapter 2, verse 1, where it said, wait on the Lord. So I encourage us to look to God's character. Who is he? He is holy. He is personal. He is mine. He's covenantal. He keeps his promises. He's eternal. He's forever. That's who God is. And when we look to him, it reflects how we should live. I, I didn't have this example, but I've got to be honest. I was worrying last night. It was about 1 o'clock, and I still couldn't sleep. I was worried about this. Um, worried about other things. Family, church, future. I sat up and I tried reading. I, I, nothing was working. Finally, I laid down and then my kids started crying. 
Uh, Lena was having a bad dream. And at first I was like, just go to sleep, be quiet. And my wife told me she's having a bad dream. So I laid down with her. And as soon as I laid down with her, she was quiet. I tried sneaking out. She started crying again. So that's where I slept last night, at the foot of their bed. But then I started thinking about that this morning. I mean, being with God, just me being there, I didn't do anything. Gave her comfort. Being with God, praying to him, gives us comfort. I didn't feel comfort last night. But just being with him, that's what really does it. So I, in, in encouraging you to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to do this myself. And this draws us on how to live. First is to avoid the life of the proud. We shouldn't pursue unjust gain, empty pursuits, idolatry. See, the life of a Christian, the difference between the righteous and the proud isn't necessarily that we're better people. Rather, the life of a Christian is one of failure. But we've learned to ask for forgiveness. That's really one of the things that distinguishes us from everyone else. We've learned to ask the God of the universe, each other, for forgiveness. Hey, I messed up. I'm sorry. And I'll probably mess up again, but I will try not to. That's all repentance is. But also we're called to pursue the life of the righteous. Why? Because the righteous live by faith. We have salvation by faith. We're called to be patient in the midst of pursuit. We're called to be a blessing to our neighbor, to our family, to our wife, to the world. So that, why? Why are we called to be a blessing? So that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like water, cover the sea. Think of that image. You guys have been to the beach. If you haven't been there, you will be at some point in the next couple weeks, right? Like water covers the sea. What else can you see when you look out into the ocean? Nothing. Be still and wait on the Lord. We're called to pray. We're called to talk to God. We're called to be silent because the Lord has promised that he will be in his temple. He is with us. If you look around you, you'll feel despair. You'll be petrified. You'll be scared. But if you look to God, if you abide in him, you'll realize that your faith is not flimsy. It's in the God of the universe, the everlasting rock. See, Ambrose had no hope of success, but his sermons and his hymns show that any success came from looking to God first. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to let Miss Kay play one line through just so we can familiarize ourselves. And then as we sing, I want you to think on the words. This is one that's not familiar, okay? I'm not expecting you to sound like a choir, but I want you to read through the words, and I want you to sing it, remembering that Ambrose wrote this, probably realizing What in the world am I doing? I'm supposed to shepherd this flock on my own. And as we think about that, I also want you, during this week, to pray for who it is who comes. That he would feel that same sense of looking to the Lord. So, let's pray, and then we'll sing this song together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk. And we thank you for the reminder of your promises, and the reminder of who you are. Again, as I've prayed so many times today, and I'm praying this even just to remind myself, fix my eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, cause us not to look to the world around us, but to look to you, that we would be transformed by praying to you. Teach us to trust. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.